Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are and wherever and whenever you're downloading this. This is Randall Rothenberg. I'm the CEO of the IEB, and this is IAB Real, where the leaders of the IAB, the industry's marketing and media digital trade association get together to discuss the issues of the day, provoke each other, and we hope provoke you. My guest host today, as always, is David Cohen, the president of the IEB. Hello, David. Hello, Randall, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How is quarantine shaping up for you? Oh, just fine. It's been uh, glorious weather outside, so it's always nice to kind of step outside and get a breath of fresh air. All is uh, good. We're in, nice, uh, we're in a rhythm, as you, uh, as you know. Yes. Uh, now you're a runner, uh, as, as I am, uh, more than occasionally, I think. Have you, have you been running outside? Uh, I have been running more now than I was uh, before. I was going through a stint of, uh, of terrible uh, disrepair in most areas, uh, eating, drinking, and physical fitness. And I've tried to, uh, over the past, let's say, three or four weeks, um, right-size that ship. So I've got, I'm running, I'd say, I don't know, three or four times a week, uh, at like four or five miles at a pop. Uh, and it's really nice to do now. Um, so, you know, originally it was like, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a, a mask? Now... There's no mask wearing, and it's just lovely to to get out. Um, so I'm I'm enjoying that as well. I was supposed to be running the Chicago Marathon uh, in October, uh, which they haven't canceled yet. Uh, and if I am going to be doing that, I really need to get my uh, myself in gear because that's like a three or four month in earnest thing. I'm not quite sure if I'm up to that, but we'll uh, we'll play it by ear. Let me ask you a question, for if you don't mind, just to sure. for starters. Let's get going. Um, you know, this is uh, this is late-breaking, fast-breaking news that we have here today. And I'm just going to read uh, something that we have here on CNN. Um, and I want to get your perspective on it. Uh, so it is uh, Quaker Oats is retiring the more than 130-year-old Aunt Jemima brand and logo, acknowledging its origins are based on a racial stereotype. And then just a quote, as we work to make progress towards racial equality through several initiatives, we must also take a hard look at our portfolio brands and ensure they reflect our values and meet our consumers' expectations. 130-year-old brand, what do you make of that, Mr. Rothenberg? Well, first I need to, uh, to ask you a question. Do you think okay. we're allowed to swear on this podcast? I think that we are making the rules. So uh, yes, I think we can. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll start with uh, without swearing. Um, uh, this is an obvious and long overdue move, but, but even setting aside the specific move by Quaker Oats uh, to retire a patently offensive um, uh, racially stereotyped brand name and brand image, um, it really calls to mind, you know, how powerful advertising and marketing are in shaping our unconscious biases. Because, you know, you grew up, I grew up even longer than you grew up uh, with, uh, with Aunt Jemima. Um, I don't think when we were kids, we or our parents ever questioned this. I don't think we questioned it, you know, when we were not kids, when we were in college and adults. And now that it's called out to you, the only thing that I can think is, what the fuck were we thinking? <laughs> I mean, how is it even possible to look at poor Uncle Ben 
or the Washington Redskins and not see them for exactly what they are, and which is just you know racial stereotypes that connote inferiority to white people. And I look at this and I'm just gobsmacked that, uh, that we in the advertising and marketing and media industry would kind of make excuses, but also adjustments and, uh, and look at nuances when the actual facts are staring us in the face. Yeah, and then you raised actually the point that was coming to mind. It's not as if, so you could be totally blind to it. It's not as if we're blind to it because we've made, brands have made adjustments to, uh, they've acknowledged that it's an issue and they've made kind of just on the, on the periphery, on the, on the outskirts, they've just kind of carved away, but they haven't made a wholesale change. So you can't even say that they've just kind of uh, just been immune to it because it has been brought to the fore. Uh, I'm not sure if Aunt Jemima specifically, but I know over the past several years, there have been many brands that have acknowledged, this is not right. Let us make some kind of modest changes on the circumference as opposed to take, taking it on uh, straight on. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, think, uh, I, I think some of the, the bigger ones out there are in the sports realm, because if you think of, say, the Washington Redskins, which yeah. I mentioned, you know, they've been really resistant. To uh, to making these changes, uh, you know, uh, and you can understand why, as a as a business owner, you'd be resistant to you know changing a brand that you've invested uh, uh, that's worth billions, yeah, that yeah. got you know uh, hundreds of millions of people attendant to it. But I think history shows us that uh, you know it's not as difficult as you think to uh, to change these things. You know, if your fans are really fans. Uh, if you've got the stickiness that you think you've got, changing the name is the least of your worries. Um, so just go ahead and do the yeah. right thing. Same taste, new great look. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly. Same taste. Yeah, new great look. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I, I let, let me not, you know, let, let me not, uh, you know, quibble uh, with Quaker Oats. They, they're doing the right thing. Uh, they're it's a, it's a symbolic effort that's got a lot of you know cost attached to it. But fundamentally, they're doing the right thing, and you know, lets the rest of us in the world of media advertising and marketing, you know, be equivalent, equivalently attendant to the the unconscious biases that we all have, and kind of like step back and not be defensive, uh, and you know, really put some really put some thought into it and make the changes when they uh, you know when they're warranted. Amen. I got a question. I got a question for you. Yes, sir. Um, one of the other uh, big news items of this week, uh, again, relates at least peripherally. That's part of my question to the uh, to the television upfront marketplace. Um, uh, also, a little more peripherally to the new fronts, which begin next week under yep. uh, IAB stewardship. The, the 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 news item I'm referring to. There was a a very heartfelt uh, memo that went out to the entire uh, industry from uh, Linda Yaccarino, who's the uh, you know president of uh, sales and partnerships for uh, NBC Universal, clearly one of the uh, most uh, powerful and skilled uh, leaders in the television industry. And the uh, the gist of her of her note was, "Hey, folks, there's a lot of change going out in the land, and we have got to collaborate." To, to take ownership of these changes and do the right thing for the industry. Um, 
I'm wondering what she was actually referring to. Uh, there's a subtext here, and I'm wondering if you can help illuminate the subtext uh, for us in Linda Yaccarino's uh, NBCU collaboration memo. Yeah, uh, I think that you're. I think you're right. There's been a lot of um, uh, a lot of talk uh, over the past, let's say, month or two, uh, about the opportunity to uh, rethink. Uh, lots of things in the uh, television ecosystem that um, that have been kind of challenging and troubling for some time. Uh, you know, different uh, groups have kind of uh, focused on different parts of that equation. Uh, you know, and I think that, you know, the simplest and easiest to understand part uh, seems to have been the one that uh, has risen to the top in most of the conversations, which is really about timing. And, you know, you and I have talked about this. The the thing that we keep on hearing from brands and from agencies is that the most important thing uh, in our current environment is agility and it is flexibility. And agility is, in fact, agility is not only the word of the day, the phrase of the moment is agility is the word of the day. That's yes. what everybody keeps repeating. Totally. So, and that is the, I'm not sure if I'd say it's the antithesis, but it is definitely um, a counter to the general idea that you're going to be doing an upfront buy in the television space in the June timeframe for the next year. Uh, and the ability to predict what your kind of business objectives are, uh, your budgets are, all, all those things. If ever there was a time to say that this is probably not the appropriate timing, it would be now. So, um, so there was a kind of an announcement last week that uh, the ANA put out, which was the desire to shift uh, the timing to the uh, back part of the, the calendar cadence, which there has always been a calendar uh, upfront. I wouldn't say always, 2006, it was created. So it's been around for quite some time. Um, and, you know, we, we wanted to, you know, in the world where data rules and kind of, uh, you know, we wanted to see what is the expectation on the part of uh, brands and agencies on the timing of the upfront. So we fielded uh, some research and uh, one of the questions we asked is, you, do you think that your kind of uh, share of spend is going to change markedly this year versus previous years as it relates to the broadcast year, calendar year, and, uh, and scatter? And uh, I was honestly surprised because I thought if there was ever going to be a time to shift back in the year, this would be it. It was unbelievably stable relative to years past. So hardly any movement, uh, which was shocking. Let's, let's unpack, unpack this a bit, uh, and I'm going to, uh, I think I say this every week, I'm going to purposely uh, and purposefully play dumb, which comes really easy to me on uh, <laughs> topics like this. So when we talk about um, the upfronts and uh, calendar year uh, timing versus upfront timing, what does that actually mean? What, what, what is calendar year buying, you know, uh, as opposed to the classic upfront tradition? Yeah. Uh, so the upfront has historically been a, uh, a presentation in May, followed by a period of uh, courtship, uh, which usually consummates itself by July 4th. That's the general kind of gist. So you'd be in negotiations from mid-May to July 4th. You would be negotiating... Um, ownership of inventory and pricing uh, for Q4 
uh, of the year that you're talking about and the following three quarters. And Q Q4 uh, is, of course, the Christmas and uh, yes, Hanukkah yes. and Kwanzaa season. So it's the, the, the biggest uh, advertising season of the year. Yes. And, and when you did that, you, uh, the reason why people did upfronts at all, basically, is because you, you wanted to lock in inventory at a preferential rate. If you didn't do that, A, it might not be available, because as we know, linear television is a uh, finite asset, uh, and it might be available at a price that's 40% you know, more than you could have paid if you bought it upfront. So there's definitely benefits to that. Right, and also from a seller standpoint, um, it creates a feeding frenzy by taking limited inventory throwing it into a very time-delimited uh, 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 buying pool. Um, you kind of create a feeding frenzy around pricing that allows the marketplace to coalesce and boom. Um, and ideally, it benefits the sellers. And historically, it has benefited the sellers over the years because prices have had a, an ongoing tendency to go up and up and up. Yes, it, that's exactly right. Uh, in 2006, um, the idea uh, of uh, this timing doesn't quite work for us, uh, A, and B, why wouldn't we try to move this to when we had a better sense of uh, marketplace uh, objectives, et cetera, why couldn't we do this same little dance, uh, just fast forward to the October, November timeframe, so you could kind of lock in one quarter, lock in fourth quarter, so you don't get, you don't miss anything, but really spend uh, the, the kind of the October, November timeframe to negotiate calendar year for the following year, January to December. Um, and that, give, that moves you closer to the moment of impact, closer to what you're trying to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that was something that um, took off for many clients. They liked the flexibility as opposed to having to lock it in months earlier uh, that the calendar year uh, afforded. And the market has kind of uh, bifurcated into kind of a, a market based on our research that was almost the same size calendar year as broadcast year, which is a little bit hard to believe, but we always thought the calendar year was slightly smaller. Um, but that's, that's kind of the difference is that just the time of the year that you're doing that negotiation. Now, um, there could be some that argue that if you don't lock it in in the June timeframe, it might not be there uh, if you did it in calendar year. The truth of the matter is uh, the television marketplace has been really taking a page out of the digital playbook in that people are in the market all the time. And you tell, you tell a seller that, you know, hey, by the way, I'm not going to promise this, but, you know, I'd love if you could kind of pin some inventory for me for Q4 so that I don't miss out. Or this is what I'm planning to do. And that's, that's how the market has evolved. Um, I mean, what I was going to say is, is the whole thing seems so antiquated uh, to me. It, it, this is the, the analogy that's popping into my head is it, it's, it's almost as if it's a debate around uh, what moment in time are we going to sell our buggy wheels, uh, but it's 1927 already and there are no horse and buggies anymore. Um, you know, we're already well into the era of General Motors and Ford. I mean, we're in a digital uh, environment where automated systems are automatically uh, uh, putting prices out. Auctions are taking place in, in milliseconds. Uh, it's happening uh, every millisecond of the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, pricing, placing, optimizing. 
is there still actually any kind of long-term role in that um, uh, automated environment? Is there still a long-time role for time-delimited marketplaces that assume limited inventory? It is such a great question. And, you know, at, at, through the years, uh, we've all had kind of like passion projects. And uh, one of them that I, I've kind of uh, surfaced is the idea of thinking about um, uh, television, linear television in a auction-based uh, way. Uh, you know, how, how could this be a fluid uh, supply and demand marketplace and take out of uh, contention all the other things that come into play uh, psyche and competitive separation and all the stuff that's kind of uh, that's kind of plagued the television space for some time. And I do believe, I mean, we see lots of players that are getting in this space to try to take pieces of inventory, whether that's local avails, two minutes an hour, or other things that are uh, interesting kind of tip of the spear innovation opportunities to try that. Uh, could you kind of take some out of circulation to play with it as a auction-based model or a automated based model. Um, you, you know as well as I, we have a conversation this afternoon uh, on that very topic. Uh, how do we think about automation in the video ecosystem? Because today it is still uh, plagued with um, inefficiencies, uh, lots of human capital expended for billing and reconciliation and other kind of stuff, which is not beneficial to anyone. So we're gonna try to highlight some of the best practices in that space and hopefully have a good conversation around what are the areas that need additional uh, attention. One last question on this. So, so you mentioned um, uh, the ANA. The ANA had a release uh, last week that was, I think it was last week, it might have been a little bit longer than that, which was, uh, you know, kind of arguing for a change in the upfront timing. And then the NBCU memo on top of that, how do I look at these two announcements together. Um, if I'm the, uh, you know, the proverbial Martian from outer space, but in this case, I'm a Martian uh, who's also an ad buyer. And I've just now kind of parachuted from my, uh, my uh, uh, satellite um, uh, that is now kind of landing in um, Area 51. And I'm now on Earth. And these two memos cross my desk. And I'm trying to make sense of it. How do I make sense of them together? I guess the, the, the best way that I can think of it is the ANA memo uh, would be operating at a thousand feet, uh, which is kind of, um, you know, lower to the surface. And the NBCU memo was operating at 10,000 feet. Uh, I think that, the, you know, the timing of the marketplace is but one component of a marketplace that, a video marketplace that really needs to reinvent. So, uh, you know, we, we've thought about that in lots of different dimensions, whether it's uh, underlying technical standards or automation or terms and conditions or measurement. There, there's just a, a lot of things. And timing is, I wouldn't say it's inconsequential, but it is a relatively small piece when I go to market or when I don't go to market is a relatively small piece in the grand scheme of things. Um, so th that would be the difference. I think that Linda was trying to... to um, have a rallying cry for the industry all up on kind of all the things that we need to do. Uh, and the ANA memo was just picking on like one uh, specific area. Yeah, well, we're, we're all in, I know, uh, with, uh, with uh, Linda's and NBCU's sentiments here. Um, there, there's a lot uh, to do. Um, it all integrates, it all overlaps with everything else. That's the hard part. Uh, but right now we have uh, umpteen 
uh, individual initiatives taking place in different parts of the industry um, to try and tackle small piece parts. And we need some kind of way to, um, uh, to bring uh, integrated and integrative thinking uh, to this. And I know, because this is near and dear to you, um, well, we, we need to figure out some collective low-hanging fruit that we, can, uh, that we can succeed with and that all of us can take credit for. I think the, the, you know, getting that kind of moral and emotional impetus behind some, uh, some small wins that are staring us in the face may give us the uh, collective force to be able to tackle some of the bigger, uh, bigger challenges. The word that comes, so the phrase that comes immediately to mind, and this is not going to shock uh, anyone probably, is that we're in an industry that is really looking for instant gratification. We're in a world that's looking for instant gratification. So we're all super busy. We all have lots of things to do. We need to, as you said, we need to pick off what are the things that we can do fairly quickly, uh, low-hanging fruit, uh, give folks confidence that this is something that we can do as a collective. And then obviously there's some midterm or long-term things that we might need to also uh, focus on. But, you know, if you don't kind of pick off some of those easy low-hanging fruit things, you'll never get to the more important ones because people will lose uh, interest and, uh, and desire to move forward. Yeah, I agree. So we had a, uh, a programmatic uh, leaders yes. uh, meeting uh, yesterday. I wanted to kind of uh, bounce some of these things back and forth with you because I was fascinated uh, by it. the... Um, uh, the, the insight, first of all, there were about 50 um, uh, CEOs, founders um, of uh, programmatic and data companies uh, on this call. And, um, and the rest were, uh, were C-suite in their companies. So it was a really important stakeholder group. And, and the, the reason we wanted to bring it together was this belated insight that we tend to ghettoize the uh, programmatic uh, segment of the industry is, oh, those are the nerds in the sub-basement, you know, who are kind of creating the, you know, the ad tech systems that make open RTB happen. Uh, but in fact, what they are, especially when you're up at the, uh, the leadership level, folks like a Michael Barrett at uh, Rubicon, Conrad Feldman at, uh, you know, Quantcast, Joe Zawadzki at MediaMath, people who are, are, have been on our board of directors, they're also in the way of literally billions and billions and billions of transactions and data points uh, that you know, kind of can help bring understanding to what's going on in the consumer economy and what's going on in, uh, in businesses. And uh, I thought it was just like really interesting to uh, bring them together, not as programmatic leaders per se, but as business and consumer economy leaders. And to hear what they, you know, what their impressions are of what's going to happen the rest of this year and on into 2021. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing that sometimes gets overlooked, which I know that um, um, we don't, but the, you know, they are the leading indicator. The things that they are seeing in the marketplace are leading indicators for where the the rest of the market is going to catch up to. So uh, the insights that they are drawing on uh, messaging what tactics are working, what placements are working, size, all, all those things with kind of trillions of activities or trillions of kind of ads that are being served, the amount of uh, insight that they have is absolutely staggering. So the question is, how can we harness that and bring that back to the marketplace for folks that are trying to make decisions? That was one of the things that was clearly apparent uh, on the call yesterday. And I don't think that everyone even realizes 
how powerful that is. Uh, so yeah, I think yeah. that we have to figure out how we how we harness that and bring that back to the marketplace. Yeah, no, they're, 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 uh, this, this cohort is an insights resource. I mean, just a, a deep insights resource. The thing that I, I think I found most compelling, I've had a number of conversations with them. Uh, Rajiv Goel, who's the um, you know, uh, co-founder and CEO of Pubmatic, one of our longtime board members, has a, uh, a very optimistic view of the way the marketplace is going to develop over the next uh, couple of years. And, um, and I find his argument very, very compelling. And in a nutshell, what he is saying is, um, uh, he thinks one, uh, uh, internet advertising or digital advertising uh, is going to double in size along with the internet itself. Uh, and the reason is that he thinks, first of all, the pandemic is now acculturating people to living and working in a different way. And a lot of time consuming um, parts of life are now going to become much more productive. I examples are um, online shopping and the explosion in um, online shopping and contactless shopping. Another example is telemedicine and, and what that does uh, to free up people's time. Um, so that's part one of his argument. Part two of the argument is that a lot of that free time is going to go to news, entertainment, information, uh, the other things that have been unleashed during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, number three, that time then also gets filled with advertising and not just advertising for the products and services we already know, but advertising that helps further the uh, new consumer behaviors that we're seeing. So he uses this as an example, Look, people are now being introduced in a mass way to telemedicine. That means they need to be trained how to use telemedicine. Yeah. And a lot of that training is going to happen from rising telemedicine companies that are going to be using advertising to do that training. And if you kind of take that kind of you know, downstream into um, uh, you know, advertising uh, around the behavior of contactless shopping, not just around the products, but the behaviors and about how different retailers are implementing it. You can actually see that the, um, this, 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 this positive worldview in which advertising serves as a, you know, a training and learning force for the new evolving economy uh, is, is quite, again, compelling. And, um, and I think most of the, uh, the folks on that call agreed with him and are seeing many of the same trends. Maybe we can uh, we can call it Goel's law, like uh, I don't know Mo Moore's law or something. Just that the internet is going to double every. Did he give a time frame? Like when is it going to double by? You know, I I don't think he gave a uh, a time okay, frame. We, I, I don't... we could we could be on Wikipedia in a heartbeat. We have Goel's law. I like yeah, it. we have Moore's law. We have Godwin's law. Mike Godwin was yes. one of the speakers at our last board meeting. So we can you know just compile. We can just start a whole new. Uh, New set of laws. Now, if think, only that's a revenue generator. That's what we need to make. Ah, the, the other thing um, that I thought, uh, among the many other things I thought were interesting on the call, probably the most interesting was um, whether uh, uh, the uh, changes we hear Apple is planning to IDFA and the already known changes that Google is planning over a two-year period to uh, deprecate uh, third-party cookies in the Chrome browser, uh, whether those presented an opportunity or a threat. And uh, by and large, 
more of the programmatic leaders see all of this as opportunity rather than threat. Now, to be sure, a lot of them do see threat in it, uh, but the threat is largely in not knowing right. and not being able to participate directly in what's going on, except through the IEB and the Tech Lab and Project REARC. But overall, you know, their point of view is a, a, a more privacy safe, uh, 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 trustworthy, understood and transparent supply chain just smooths the path to business and gives them an opportunity uh, to participate in a, um, you know, in a uh, uh, kind of a, again, known, transparent, smoothly operating, efficient and effective supply chain. So they're kind of all in on the, uh, the opportunity. Well, you, I mean, you look around that, you look around that virtual room and these are the folks that are the, these, these are the folks that are the entrepreneurs who have created the internet as we, uh, you know, internet advertising as we know it today. They are particularly innovative, resilient. I, I think that they're, they look at this as a, uh, a new business challenge that will also be overcome uh, and, and provide opportunity for them to catapult their business. So it was, uh, I thought that was a really good, we spent a good bit of time on that. Uh, and um, I thought it was a really good, healthy conversation. I want to, I want to ask you a, a last question uh, before we, uh, we wrap up. It's a, it's a little bit of a left field question that, great. Uh, that we haven't fully prepared for. Okay, um, great. You convened a town hall uh, this past week called Prove It to Move It, Making the Case for Connected TV. We had over 300 people attend. It was great conversation around the barriers and solutions for moving money to connected TV. Uh, what I want to ask you is, what is your favorite connected TV experience so far? Um, so I, as you would probably not be surprised, have every device known to man, and I have more, I like this kind of splitter of things, so I could just go from one to the other. I am a big fan, um, uh, Roku is a super simple um, uh, interface that I've come to enjoy and, you know, has the benefits of kind of the, the fat tail, the middle tail, and the long tail, and you could just get lost in kind of uh, content exploration on Roku, so that's one of my um, my favorite uh, experiences, and um, I think that's probably the one. I mean, I, I've used, you know, Xbox and PlayStation and Samsung's kind of built in and LG's built in and Apple. I think Roku is probably my, my favorite. What about you? Yeah, well, I, I, I love Roku as a device for exactly the same reasons, and uh, I have one of, one of our TVs uh, is uh, Roku built in, so it's basically yeah. the operating system makes it even easier uh, because I'm not fiddling with 17 different uh, yeah. remotes at once. But I was thinking for, from a programming basis, I can't remember whether I've mentioned uh, this before. I hope not, but I, I'm nothing if not repetitive. Um, <laughs> I have become a really big fan of Pluto TV, uh, which I tend to access actually on my Roku yeah. uh, box. But uh, I'm kind of amazed at how Viacom basically took its entire programming library and then used it to mimic structurally your uh, your cable system um, yeah. and how they've segmented the programming off so that they're, you know, uh, individual channels devoted in some cases to individual beloved programs, in some cases to uh, topic areas, uh, in some cases to um, to specific special events. So, so it's almost as if um, Pluto TV is the 
ideal representation of what uh, an EPG, an electronic programming guide, an interest-based programming uh, guide yeah. should look like. And what fascinates me about it is my tendency has been in watching it is to flip through it live. So it's almost become like an antidote or a counter to, uh, to video on demand. Um, it, it appeals to you know, the, the child in me who just, or actually the lazy adult who just likes flipping through things and seeing what's on. And it's just so much more interesting than my overall cable, cable system is. So yeah, that, I think yeah, no, I think that that's right. And the thing that, that comes to mind as you're talking about that, which is both an opportunity and a challenge, I think, is now with the proliferation of so many of these different services, um, you know, and uh, the, it's like the age old question of, you know, 8,000 uh, channels and nothing to watch. It's how do you find at any one time, there needs to be a meta discovery tool that kind of oh. looks across all of these things and allows you to kind of find what it is that you're looking to find, whether it's a by content, by genre, by actor, actress, by, or just kind of just uh, what it knows about me at a macro level. Like, wouldn't that be an awesome uh, thing for the marketplace to do? I've been saying for years that the, uh, the absolute uh, kind of end all be all gazillion dollar innovation would be somebody reinventing the concept of TV guide for yeah. uh, the proliferating universe of digital video. I would love to see it. I keep looking for it. I think the best closest we've gotten to that is our own social media feeds, but they're also kind of limited because, you know, your friends will know you, uh, you know, with a couple dimensions, but not all the dimensions. So my friends don't necessarily know my obsession with you know, grade Z uh, horror movies from the 1950s or my obsession with film noir. Um, so I'd love a way to kind of search those more deeply and discover them more deeply than I currently can. We are being told to wrap up by our, our bosses. So <laughs> I'm going to uh, thank you, David Cohen, for uh, your uh, conversation this week. Uh, we will see each other next week again and converse in the middle of the new front. Uh, but for now, let me thank our audience as well for, uh, for tuning in to our weekly IAB Real podcast, where the leaders of the IAB get real with each other and with the rest of our constituents about what's going on in the world of digital media and marketing. On behalf of uh, David Cohen, the president of the IAB, Dennis Buckheim, our occasional co-host, the president of the IAB Tech Lab, I'm Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IAB thanking you, inviting you back, and telling you, get real with IAB Real. Bye-bye.